This week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track, China's coronavirus aftermath. Why Matthews Asia's chief investment officer, Robert Horrocks, is optimistic about future performance in the world's second largest economy. I do think that China's probably going to lead the Asian markets. Uh, mm-hmm. It's certainly one of the best valued. Um, it is a market that with the opening of the A-shares, those are the domestic listed companies, that the opportunity set has increased uh, with all the worries we've had over trade and uh, more recently over the virus. It's been hit on the head after one thing, after another, after another. And so your valuations that look quite compelling. Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. The coronavirus has gone global, and as it has traveled from its starting point in China to other parts of the world, so have the headlines about it. But as long-term investors, we want to refocus on China, the world's second largest economy, and Asia, one of the world's most vibrant and fastest growing regions, to assess the damage and opportunity this terrible virus has created. Joining us is Robert Horrocks, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Matthews Asia. Matthews is a pioneer, now the largest Asia-only investment firm in the U.S., with more than $25 billion in assets under management, including 15 mutual funds. Horrocks oversees Matthews Asian growth and income and dividend strategies. Robert, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. On Matthews Asia website, you recently published a perspective titled Current Conditions Call for a Long-Term Focus. What are current economic and business conditions in China? Well, the current conditions are not great. And obviously, I think everybody's focused on the coronavirus and the impact that that has had. But I don't think it's the only impact going on in China. But let's talk about the, the virus first, because that's on top of everybody's minds. And I I think the impact of the virus is more in the reaction that you've had to it than the actual virus itself. Um, And and that reaction has caused people to stay away from work, uh, to stay away from the streets and spending money. So you're going to see some companies uh, suffer on a a quarterly or maybe the next two quarters uh, worth of business. They're going to lose those sales almost entirely. And that could wipe out for some companies uh, the entire profits for the year. Um, So that's been the impact of the virus. But in addition to that, I would say that going into this year, the the People's Bank of China had been fairly tight in terms of money policy throughout 2019. And that the core inflation rate had come down to uh, 1.4% in China. So even coming into this, there was an idea that the Chinese were just tapping on the brakes a little bit, slowing the economy down, slowing profit growth down. And so you've had one hit on top of another. And when that happens, you tend to reach um, extremes in the market. And I certainly think the market falls that we've had recently are probably an opportunity rather than anything else. Now, we've seen some initial figures that Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing came out for February, and it just plummeted, I guess, to an all-time low of 35.7 from January's 50. And I know that some forecasters are predicting real GDP in China could contract 5% in the first quarter, and the effects of shutting the economy down could extend into the second quarter. What 
is your thinking at Matthews? Yeah, I don't know about the, the precise figures. Uh, contraction of 5% in the country's GDP seems, uh, seems extreme, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you had a very low number or, or a negative number. I think the markets will see through that uh, to the longer term a little bit more because we know that the, the, the extreme impact of the virus lasts only for as long as the warmer weather comes through. And these viruses find it very difficult to survive as the weather heats up. We also know that if you look at within China itself, the total number of active cases is already uh, on the decline. It, it peaked at 80,000 odd cases. Many of those have already recovered. So it's probably only 40 some thousand active cases left in China. And the daily uh, additions are just a, a couple of hundred or so. So it looks like the, uh, the disease has peaked in China and that the real areas of concern in the world at the moment are those areas outside of China where you might be at a, uh, an earlier stage of the growth in the number of cases. So again, I, I think, you know, the PMIs, the, the, the numbers are going to look very tricky for the next quarter or two, but I do think the markets are telling us that they can see through that and they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So one of the uh, things that you had addressed in your report uh, as well was the Western media's skepticism about China's, mm. the accuracy of China's reporting and the drop-off in the number of cases in coronavirus is really stunning in China. And it, that's raised a lot of questions. You know, is this real? Could it have dropped off that quickly? Um, but you have an opinion about that, about our skepticism, whether or not it's justified or not. Is it? I'm always skeptical about Western skepticism of China um, <laughs> because, you, you know, some, sometimes it's deserved. Uh, I think here the only skepticism that is deserved is have has the the actual number of reported cases. Is it, uh, in fact, uh, indicative of the real size of cases? I mean, there are many people who might have caught this virus who just don't feel that sick. And so they don't uh, um, go to the hospital and they sort of self-treat. I, I wonder in the US how many cases are really out there because not many people have been tested for the no, virus. They so that, there are all of these issues that tell you that the numbers can't possibly be the real numbers. But in terms of the Chinese response to this virus, I think it's been far more organized uh, than was the case during SARS in when I was in Shanghai in 2003. It's been to try and contain the virus as much as they can to Wuhan and the uh, the province of Hubei. And I have to say that they've been remarkably effective in doing that. And there is a, a sense in which China has taken it on the chin for the rest of the world here. Now, obviously, it's leaked out of the country into other places, but still it has been remarkably well contained. As for the falling off in the number of cases, it's pretty much followed the path of some of the models that we saw put out there by some of the epidemiologists uh, early on in the outbreak. It's not too dissonant with those original models. So I, I see no reason to really question the the intent and the, uh, uh, the desire of the Chinese authorities to get the numbers right. What is the greatest misperception possibly that you're seeing in the coverage of the coronavirus and specifically uh, in how China has handled it? 
is there something that you all are talking about at Matthews Asia that the rest of us are missing? I think people's fears are naturally focused on uh, the idea that this might become a pandemic. Whereas if you look at the data, the, the majority of cases are overwhelmingly within China. And within China, the majority of cases are overwhelmingly in Hubei province, which suggests to me that it's a containable uh, condition. And, uh, I, you know, I've had people out there telling me it's very contagious and, uh, and the data shows us that. And I think that's the fear of being close to it. Whereas whenever I look at the data, it suggests that China has actually done a pretty decent job of containing it geographically within their own borders. And I don't think that people have given them enough credit for that and have appreciated what they've done there. You mentioned that the uh, People's Bank of China was tightening going into the virus and comment on the ability of China's government uh, now, not only its monetary policy, but also its fiscal policy uh, to respond to the economic damage that's been caused by, you know, shutting off large parts of China and delaying the opening of business. What are you expecting to see or what are you seeing? So if you look at the four big uh, banks in the world, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of China and the ECB, their combined um, um, total assets in U.S. dollar terms contracted throughout the last uh, 18 months or so to a degree that we haven't seen in the last 20 years. And if you look at the long bond yield in the US, that, that's been falling since late uh, 2018, which tells you that uh, the markets were expecting a global slowdown even before this virus outbreak happened. So yeah, you now have to look around the world and you say, who is able to stimulate? Who's best placed? And I would say China has a pretty low core rate of inflation at about one and a half percent now. It has the savings and a reasonably uh, strong enough fiscal position that it can stimulate uh, and, and protect nominal aggregate demand uh, in, in the country. I think in the US there's room for monetary stimulus, less room for fiscal stimulus perhaps. In Europe, they could be doing both, but the political will just isn't there. So I think China is actually reasonably well placed. There's, there's very little you can do, though, in the short term to bring factories online. They're either making stuff or they're not making stuff. But what you can do with a, a monetary stimulus, you can give help to those businesses that otherwise might have been in financial trouble. Uh, during the shutdown, you can help them to get through. You can give them time to get their machinery up and running and their workforce um, back in the factory. So it's more about smoothing out the frictions uh, over the next few quarters than it is to uh, to do anything real to the to the underlying economy. But I, I, I think China is well placed to do that. What's your perspective on China's stock market? Um, what was it before the virus, and what's your outlook now? I was, you know, relatively optimistic about China's stock markets going into this. Um, I, I saw the People's Bank of China starting to reverse policy and starting to stimulate a little bit more. I saw uh, potential for earnings to increase uh, at a much faster rate over the next few years than uh, they had in the recent history of China, and actually probably even to outpace earnings growth in the U.S. We'll, we'll come back to that one. Uh, in a minute. 
And I also saw a market which had been beaten down to pretty reasonable valuations, given all the other things that had been going on with the trade war and with sentiment around the political protests in Hong Kong. I'm still of that view. I think what the virus has done is sort of delayed that rebound rather than derailed it. And one of the big things that I've been looking at in China that is very different to the U.S. and which will actually become a focus, I think, as people look at the U.S. presidential election, is that China has done a really good job with its labor policies over the last few years, making sure that the lower income households and the workers have not fallen behind as, as the economy has continued to grow. So you simply haven't seen the, the same kind of polarization that you're seeing in the U.S. here between the haves and the have-nots. Now, whereas that has been great for internal social stability, it's also meant that corporate profit margins in China have been squeezed. And so when we look at valuations and we say China looks relatively inexpensive, it's actually inexpensive on what are lower than normal profit margins. And the U.S. looks relatively more expensive on what I would argue are higher than normal profit margins. So my view on China is still optimistic. I do think the rebound might have been delayed. But as I said, the market is tending to look through these things. And actually, the Chinese market, particularly over uh, recent weeks when the U.S. has been very weak, the Chinese market has been a little bit more resilient. And even some of the U.S.-listed China stocks have been more resilient than uh, their their American peers. Let me ask you, can you really compare, I'm just thinking of the opportunities in the U.S. market, which is, of course, large, you know, mature, developed, governed by a rule of law, transparent. Can you really compare the U.S. market to the Chinese market, domestic market? Uh, let me... Comparison? Let me put it this way, Consuelo, yeah. you could compare and contrast. Okay. So, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the two are not the same. Uh, right. And each will have their own, uh, their own strengths and weaknesses. It's, it's been a very interesting 20 years. If you look at the last 20 years, the first 10 was definitely a period where the Chinese profits were outpacing those in the U.S. Economic growth in China was faster than the U.S., the last 10 years, it's, it's been completely the flip of that, uh, where the U.S. earnings have outpaced those in China for all these issues around labor's losing share in, in the U.S., plus companies not investing and buying back equity so that the earnings per share was boosted. Uh, I think you, you, I look at the two and I say the economic conditions in the two are very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, the choices that the U.S. has made to, to accept a more polarized society in order to maintain the stock market, um, and I think in, in, in some respect, having a healthy stock market and a healthy property market props up nominal GDP here, whereas China's gone a different route. China's decided to focus on social stability first and is trying to um, improve the quality of its market. The... The Chinese are not really looking so much for short-term price gains in the market, but they want better quality companies. They want to improve the corporate governance. They want to democratize the market so that it can support a domestic pension fund system. And there is a, a sense in which they're foregoing a little bit of the fun 
and the growth in the very near term in order to set the stage for better quality growth uh, over the next decade. So, yeah, I think you can say that in terms of overall quality, the Asian stock market lags far behind the US and actually lags behind much of Asia. Um, but the Chinese authorities are aware of that, uh, are trying to put it to rights. And, in, and what you're seeing is the emergence of domestic champions, some good quality businesses in China um, that do make sense as a long-term portfolio now. But, you know, a, a quality company in China is perhaps only to be found in 30% of the listed equities. So you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find, uh, find the, right, uh, the right prince. Right, which is what Matthews does on a daily basis. I have to ask you one more question about politics in China. I mean, the other major change is President Xi's consolidation of power. Does that trouble you at all? Whatever, yeah, it There's does. Been a big change. It does trouble me uh, to a certain extent. I mean, first of all, a, a little bit of the the details. What he did was he made the presidency uh, have no term limits on it. Um, now, technically speaking, the presidency is a very uh, weak position in the Chinese uh, political sphere. What you really want to be is general secretary of the party and chief of the military commission. Those are the two powerful positions. Deng Xiaoping, for example, who set in play the all of the reforms we've seen in yes. China in the late 70s was never president. It's really a ceremonial title. So... To one sense, we think that there might be something that is just somewhat superficial about this. But in another sense, does it uh, does it suggest that uh, she is saying, well, you know what, uh, there's no term limits on the presidency. There were never term limits on general secretary of the party or the military commission. So I want to continue on beyond the uh, the conventional uh, two terms. The good side of that is it allows him to push through a lot of the reforms that he wanted to push through. Um, I don't think it signals the uh, a return to a command economy in terms of state-owned enterprises. Okay. Uh, rather, I do think he is uh, sincere in wanting to focus on quality businesses. And I really do think the Chinese want to create a lot of confidence, both domestically and outside the country, in their own capital markets. However, in terms of the mood across the country, in terms of the uh, respect for individual freedoms and for uh, freedom of thought in particular, um, it, it does worry me that you might retard some of the movement to a more creative individualistic society and retard some of the movement towards rule of law, which would enshrine your right as a foreign company or uh, an individual against the company or uh, or against the government to protect your rights. And that's the area I think that it gives us most pause for thought and most concern. As far as the rest of Asia, you, of course, represent Matthews Asia, which I mentioned. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got 15 mutual funds, several different uh, country funds, dividend strategies, whatever. How has the virus uh, impacted business in the rest of Asia now that it has spread to other nations? It's really having, I guess, the biggest impact in, in Korea mm -hmm. and to a much lesser extent in Japan. But the worry here is really going to be on the tech industry, on supply chains. You know, factories are shut down for a short period of time. The blow can be mitigated by the amount of inventories that you have in stock. 
Well, of course, in a world of uh, very lean inventories and just-in-time inventory management, you lose those buffers. And then it takes a while to get these factories up and running again. So I, I think the supply chain in some of the global tech industry might be impacted. However, when we look across the rest of Asia, uh, we haven't seen a, a, a huge practical impact from, from the virus. It's more been on people's reaction to the virus uh, and some spending, some high street spending. But that, I think, is much easier for, uh, for markets to see through. As far as the stock markets are concerned, and you mentioned the U.S. stock market delivered double the returns of Asia X Japan over the last decade. And uh, before the virus, you had you know written that you anticipated a turning point for Asia X Japan, that it was prime for growth. So what's your assessment now for this decade for Asian markets X Japan? I still think that uh, they are likely to grow faster than the developed world. And uh, the growth that you see in profits in a country and, and in a stock market will depend first of all on the nominal GDP growth in US dollars. Um, and there I think you're likely to see underlying growth is going to be faster. Currencies should be relatively stable, uh, if not uh, appreciate slightly against the dollar. That would be our view. Then you look at labor shares of income. So how much of that growth goes to the corporates and how much of it goes to the laborer? And there we've already uh, mentioned that mm -hmm. the laborer has been taking up a, an increased share over the last few years, but they've got that labor share back to historic averages. Whereas here in the US and in much of the rest of the world, we're nowhere near historic averages. So I think that you're well primed to get profit growth in the Asian economies uh, at a much higher rate than the developed world. The only question then is how is it going to be reflected in the stock markets in terms of earnings per share growth? And that depends right. on how well companies manage uh, the efficiencies, how well they look after the minority shareholder. So that is going to depend on bottom-up stock picking, picking those uh, companies that really care about the minority shareholder and want to grow the businesses for them uh, and not just for the top line. Now, Matthews is a bottom-up investment firm, and you do invest in individual companies in each of your funds. I, I mentioned you run, uh, I guess, 15 funds, and they each have a specific focus and ranging from country funds like Japan and South Korea, which are among your oldest funds, to uh, another stalwart, Asian Growth and Income, which you head up and oversee that strategy as well, plus your dividend funds again, which you co-manage and oversee that strategy. Which among all of your funds, this is like picking a favorite child, are the most <laughs> undervalued right now? Where are the greatest opportunities being created? Yeah, I do think that China's probably going to lead the Asian markets. Uh, mm -hmm. It's certainly one of the best valued. Um, it is a market that with the opening of the A shares, those are the domestic listed companies, that the opportunity set has increased uh, with all the worries you've had over trade and uh, more recently over the virus. It's been hit on the head after one thing, after another, after another. And so your valuations look quite compelling. I've always liked the dividend philosophy for investing. I, I like the fact that it means you're getting cash out of the business. That means that the business is healthy, it's able to grow sustainably. It also means that management uh, cares about you as a minority shareholder. So mm -hmm. I, I look at the China dividend uh, strategy as, as a great way if you've got a long-term patient uh, strategic view 
uh, on China. And and this might transition into the final question that I always ask everyone on a WealthTrack interview is if there's one investment we should all own in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? Oh, well, you know, I would always, I would always suggest uh, that uh, given China's growing importance in, in the world markets, I would look for a core China strategy. I, I wouldn't pick a, a, a particular stock here at, at the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I've always liked the China dividend strategy. That's, uh, that's one that I own. But I think people should be looking uh, at adding some China exposure, find uh, a, a, a manager that can offer you a, a strategy that has exposure to not only the Hong Kong listed shares and the ADRs uh, that might be listed in the US market, but also has access to the A shares in China. Um, I'd encourage you to quiz the manager on on how much of a long-term strategic view they have on the country. Um, and I think having a little bit uh, of your diversified portfolio in a China-focused strategy makes a lot of sense. We're going to leave it there. Robert Horrocks, thank you so much for joining us. I know this is a really busy time for you at Matthews Asia, and we appreciate your taking the time to share your perspective with us. Consuelo, it's my pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. 